Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. And we are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you for your word, and we pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit here this morning to understand this, your very word, and our world. Give us discernment. Give us your very life. Thank you, Jesus, that you welcome any and all of us by grace and grace alone. By virtue of your crucifixion and resurrection, Father, would we take steps towards you in faith here this morning and towards others for the good of our world and the glory, Father, of your name. We pray in that name that is above all names, even Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So like I mentioned a moment ago, talking about gender, gender deconstruction, transgender identification, and things are changing quickly. Even over the past 10 years, there's been more and more friends, neighbors, we ourselves identifying on the transgender spectrum to one extent or another, and increasingly gender binarism, that human beings are made basically to be men and women is called into question increasingly too. So a lot of different things going on in our world right now. And for my own part, it's not only the medical technology, it's not only the issues, but the ground beneath our feet is changing as well. Here's a true story. So a friend of Emily's and mine from a previous church, she's an older woman, older mom, and she and her husband raised all of her kids in the church, but then with one particular daughter of hers, when she came into adulthood, they had a rocky relationship. She was the one that in late teens and early 20s kind of rebelled against her parents, rebelled against her church, and said, I'm, I'm not for this anymore. How dare you have raised me in this church context? I had no choice, but I was brainwashed by all of that church junk. So the relationship between our friend and her grown daughter, not that great. And incidentally, that's, that's something in the cultural drinking water. So when Emily and I were away last week, we had the opportunity to go to Roma, go to Rome. And in one particular cloister in Rome, there is an exhibit. Do you know the graffiti art artist Banksy? There is this Banksy retrospective, and one of the Banksy graffitos was this image of Madonna and child, Madonna and baby Jesus on the way back. From Rome, I watched Talladega Nights, so Ricky Bobby would have approved of the image of baby Jesus there. But then also, the Madonna was holding a baby bottle that had a radioactive symbol on it. So Madonna feeding baby Jesus with a radioactive little baby bottle. And I think the takeaway was what bad, evil, toxic things 
are being taught by the church and inculcated within our young people. So, relationship between our friend, the older woman, the grown daughter, not that great. But then one day our friend got a call. And the grown daughter said, hey, just want you to know that for our little girl, she's starting to present as a boy. And she's doing boy things, not girl things. She's hanging out with boys. She's not hanging out with girls. And so we've decided that we're going to change her name to a masculine name. We're going to begin using masculine pronouns for her. And later on, we're going to start hormone therapy, and we intend to do a gender reassignment and transition. And she said, we're calling you because we need to know if you support this decision that we're making right now. And this little girl was about to turn three. And then our friend said, hey, can we talk a little bit more about this? We, we have some reservations. But then the grown daughter completely shut down the relationship. Completely shut down the relationship. I can't believe you're not supporting me. You're actually hating me and my family right now. We, we can't continue in this relationship. Now, telling you that story, I'm sure there are a lot of, you know, feelings and opinions in the room or online. But here's the upshot question for me and for us at this point. Why, for this grown daughter, was one of those things okay and the other of those things not okay? Why not okay for her to have been raised in the church, going to Sunday school, going to the equivalent of Liberty Kids, all the coffee and cigarettes that I just talked about. Why was that totally not okay? I had no choice, how dare you? But then turning around, raising a not yet three-year-old girl as a boy, totally okay. The ground is shifting beneath our feet. And there is at least one, maybe more, sexual supremacies or empires or hegemonies out there. Here's one especially on the coasts, you could be marginalized in your job, you could lose your job, you could be blackballed from an entire industry based on what you might think about gender, gender deconstruction, gender identity, transgender identification, and or for your opinions about what can be done in a bedroom and between whom. You can lose your job. Even if your vocation, your job, your field has nothing to do with bedrooms. That is a sexual hegemony or empire or supremacy. But not only that, there's more than one. Over the past couple of years here in Philadelphia, in this region, there has been an uptick in assault and violence against black transgender women. That's another sexual supremacy that's barking, where only for these people being in their own skin. There's violence and assault and attack against these friends and neighbors. And when it comes to gender issues, gender deconstruction, transgender identification, what's your take? Probably in this room and online, there's a spectrum of thoughts and opinions from yes to yuck to bewilderment. Yes, yeah, that's totally good, healthy, why are we even talking about this? Let's do it. And then, yuck, there's just this, ah, emotionally, and then bewilderment, as in, I'm not quite sure what to think about all these things. And chances are, too, you, we probably already have some formed opinions about such things, which is why I felt that it was important to talk about these things this morning. 
So I've preached on Genesis chapter 1 through my years in ministry multiple times, but it's only now in this current context when I read a verse like Genesis 127, and I've been fielding questions about gender issues for years now, what does the Bible say? How can we get any biblical wisdom on this issue that is so contentious and so strongly felt in our culture when we read, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So we need to talk. In two parts from here, I want to talk about some caveats and the past, and then I want to talk about the present and the future. So we are in the midst here at Liberty Collingswood of what we're calling the Represence Initiative, a 24-month extravaganza where we are relaunching our church into a brave new world, and we're talking about how as part of the Represence Initiative, in a multitude of different ways, we want to engender within our people a third-way walk in worldview where we are beholden neither to the secular political left or the secular political right, because Christianity truly is its own thing, and how do we equip each other in this season when so many things are contested, specifically here this morning about gender identity and transgender identification. So some definitions. I'll give you a couple. Uh, one is gender dysphoria, and so that, that, that's a definition that I understand is being used less boots on the ground now, but it's in the DSM, and it's something that, that has been used to try to describe what's going on as people feel misaligned gender-wise within their own bodies. And even if this is in the DSM but not being used now, to me that also illustrates how rapidly all of these things are continue to be in flux and they're changing. So these definitions are from an LGBT group in the UK. And gender dysphoria is used to describe when a person experiences discomfort or distress because there is a mismatch between their sex assigned at birth and their gender identity. This is also the clinical diagnosis for someone who doesn't feel comfortable with the gender they were assigned at birth. And then trans or transgender. An umbrella term to describe people whose gender is not the same as or does not sit comfortably with the sex they were assigned at birth. Trans people may describe themselves using one or more of a wide variety of terms, including but not limited to transgender, non-binary, or genderqueer. And so, I'm not jumping into these topics because I want to pick a fight. I'm not trying to pick on any individual person. And like I said a couple of weeks ago with abortion, not a politician, I'm not a priest. It's not my job to give you policy answers specifically to any number of topics, and I'm not a priest. I'm not speaking inerrantly on the part of God. You are free in your own conscience and bound by the scriptures. At the end of the day, it's between you, the scriptures, and God if you call upon the name of Jesus. And let's keep in mind, too, that as we talk about different principles related to these issues, we're also talking about people. These are people with deeply felt and held experiences, with lots of trauma, with lots of hurt, with lots of backstory. We recognize that, and we also recognize that the church has been a source of trauma for a lot of people that have wrestled with these things. And I understand, too, that these are strongly held feelings, because these are not just people out there. These are our friends. These are our neighbors. These are our loved ones. These are we ourselves. So we do need to treat these questions with deep care and compassion. And one of the things that I read in preparation for this sermon is a little book called Transgender by a man named Vaughn Roberts. And sometimes little books are not that good. Sometimes big books are not that good. But sometimes little books on big subjects can like oversimplify or not get to the root of things. 
But this little book I thought was actually good about a big subject. Von Roberts is a same-sex attracted priest in the Anglican Church in England living celibately. And he wrote this book called Transgender. And this is what he says at one point. Most of us can only begin to imagine the distress that might be associated with gender dysphoria. Certainly no one ends up in an operating room for a radically invasive surgical procedure having taken the decision lightly. We have to recognize that there must be a huge amount of prolonged distress and struggle behind that decision. So it's vital that Christians take care never to think or talk of those who struggle in this way with any kind of disrespect. We must speak with compassion and affirm the dignity of every human being. We are all made in the image of God. And similarly, again, to what I said during the abortion sermon, often with pro-life Christians and churches, the weight of anger and angst when it comes to abortion is actually placed on the women, the young women, the girls themselves, who many of them didn't want to have an abortion in the first place, but were weak and vulnerable and felt like they had no way out. So similarly, when we address these questions, we don't want to put our weight and if you feel angst or anger or bewilderment, upon the very people that are feeling these things very deeply. So let's not shun, let's not shame. Also, here's another story. Just down Haddon Avenue years ago, at Groove Ground, the coffee shop, I had coffee with a gay man. And he said, after 9-11, I almost took my own life. I asked him, why? Did you have friends and family in the Twin Towers that fell? He said, no, the reason that I took my own, almost took my own life was because of Jerry Falwell. And I said, what? I don't see the connection there. Tell me more. And he said, well, right after 9-11, Jerry Falwell, Southern evangelical church preacher and leader and writer, said that, well, part of the reason why 9-11 happened is because in our country there are so many gay and lesbian people right now. They helped the towers fall. And this man that I was talking to said, I don't want anybody to die. What if he's right? Is there this blood on my hands? And so he went to the Ben Franklin Bridge and couldn't find a way down and walked back instead of jumped off. So we keep that in mind. And we understand, too, that it's not just assault on transgender men and women that's occurring in our culture, but it's taking one's own life, the suicide rates for transgender friends through the roof relative to the rest of society. And so I'll caveat and disclaimer again, gender dysphoria is a real thing. It's real. So from a biological perspective, chromosomal, it's not just XX and XY. That is true. And so strictly speaking, if somebody would say, men and women don't all neatly fit into the gender binary of men and women, strictly speaking, that's true. And as not an expert on these things, but as I understand the triangulation between genitalia and genotype and neurology that there is stuff like intersex where you're kind of in between one and the other or some some combination of both but then and this is where I'll start to, to tweak or critique just a little bit just because not everybody falls into these two categories that doesn't mean that those two categories don't obtain or not there there's a philosophical or logical fallacy called the line drawing fallacy that says just because you don't know exactly where to draw the line between this thing and that thing that doesn't mean that there's not a difference between this thing and that thing so the fact that not everybody falls into basic binary categories doesn't mean that basic binary 
isn't necessarily a thing. And gender dysphoria, biologically driven, is real. And then moving forward to psychological gender dysphoria, and I don't know where to draw the line between these things. It's still being studied. It's still being researched. Transitioning to another category of folks where the biological drivers might not be as upfront, but there's still a deep psychological feeling that my, my, my true gender, my true sex, does not align with my body. That also is real. And I realize that this is apples and oranges, but if we have somebody, whether an adult or a young person, that says, I, I feel anxious or I feel depressed, you know, we don't say, no, you don't, stop it. So neither when people come to us or we have friends and neighbors, loved ones ourselves, and say, I'm, I'm feeling a misalignment here, we don't shut down, we don't say, stop it, it's, it's all in your head, it doesn't exist. What's in our head is real. But here's where I'll come back and critique just a tiny bit as well. As friends completely transition to gender transition, there's something in the cultural groundwork again where it seems plausible and healthy that to bring body and soul into alignment, it's the body to be surgically changed, to be aligned with the mind as opposed to the other way around, the mind therapeutically aligned with the body. How do we get to this point? So talking about some principles and some of those ground motives again, the key, even when we go back to these definitions, it is a feeling, gender dysphoria or transgender, when you don't feel like your true gender is aligning with body. And so I've mentioned before in sermons over the past couple of years something called expressive individualism, where, where that is the spirit of our age in terms of how we construct our own identities. And for something like these issues that we're talking about, expressive individualism truly comes home to roost. Let me give you some fingerprints on these things, how we got to this point. Bear with me as I talk to you about a couple old white guys. So, 18th century, Jean-Jacques Rousseau was a Genevan philosopher who was one of the early adopters of what philosophers have called the inward turn. As we seek to define ourselves and our own identity, we look inside to our interior. So then, Rousseau has said, the particular object of my confessions is to make known my inner self exactly as it was in every circumstance of my life. It is the history of my soul that I promised. All I need to do is to look inside myself. Interesting, right? 1700s. And that idea where the true self is, is the interior carries forward into the 20th century. So a French guy, Jean-Paul Sartre, I apologize if there are actually French speakers here that I'm mangling these, these pronunciations, but a French existentialist philosopher from the, from the 20th century, after World War II, wrote a book in English. The book is called Reflections on the Jewish Question. And this is what he said about what it means to be truly a Jewish person. Jewish authenticity consists in choosing oneself as a Jew. That is, in realizing one's own Jewish condition. So I don't know if this was an intentional echo of the words of the Apostle Paul way back then, but what Sartre is saying is a true Jewish person, a true Jew, is one that is one inwardly and chooses the Jewish condition. You might be a Jewish person outwardly. That doesn't mean you're actually a Jewish person. It's what you decide on the inside. As you might imagine, post-World War II European context, this sort of thinking was not well-received by Jewish people that kind of came back and said, oh, I should have thought of that when I was being pursued by the Gestapo. I'm not identifying as a Jewish person today. That, that would not have worked. 
But what seemed a little bit out there in those contexts have come to be very much the cultural drinking water that we're in right now. The therapeutic self, what we feel on the inside, is absolutely, incontestably real. And I'm not saying that's a totally horrible or bad thing, but it is what it is. A couple other ingredients, too. Sigmund Freud, old German guy, the father of psychoanalysis and one of the you know, early progenitors of psych psychiatric care, psychology. Now, there are very few people that are actually Freudians. I, in fact, I've never met one, a, a therapist today, and I, I don't recommend that you go see, yeah, I'm, I'm in therapy. I found this great Freudian that I think is really going to solve all of my problems. Tell me about your father. So, but anyway, what has filtered in through a Freudian perspective is that everything is sexualized. And if you want to talk about the core of human identity and being, it is the sexual self. And how we identify and express sexually is truly who we are. Nothing is pre-sexualized for people. So Freud said, even as a little baby, you have a sexualized relationship with your mother. You have a sexualized relationship with your father. That is the core to human identity. And then one more ingredient. Karl Marx. Now, Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud were not friends. And I'm not saying... I mean, some people are, would call themselves Marxists, but here's, here's the filter down in this case. Oppression is everywhere. And any sort of limit imposed by one person on another person or one people group on another people group is inherently oppressive. And from a biblical perspective, I think we need a little more nuance there where, yes, absolutely, some limits, person to person or people group to people group, they are oppressive and we oppose those things, but not necessarily in all cases. And so, from the animal kingdom, a bird can't breathe with gills. That's not an oppressive condition for the bird. It's just not how the bird is made. So I mentioned all of those different thinkers and ingredients to say this. How do we typically, in the West, late modern period, construct our identities? Who are we? What do we look to? Well, who am I? It is what I choose how I feel has everything to do with sexuality and how I express gender and sexuality. And the purpose of my identity is to make sure that I am liberating myself from any and all oppressive structures. What I feel, what I choose, everything to do with gender and sex, and liberating from any possible oppressive limit. In a cultural context like this, it makes all the sense in the world that this is also the period where transgender identification is on the rise, where gender deconstruction is occurring, of course now. And we'll notice here as well, this way of constructing human identity is novel. It's new. Of course, there have been transgender people before the present day, but this way of constructing identity is really new. And because I have some, some reservations about where all of this is going, I'll, I'll have friends and loved ones and neighbors say, well, Jim, you're just on the wrong side of history about all of these things. And I've come back in a couple of cases and said, it's kind of like the opposite, right? Where like, you know, history has been very strongly in the other direction about some of these things for a really long period of time. And do we want to shove all of our chips into this identity construction part of the table when the car is barely off the lot? 
is this really going to obtain? And even as we look around the world, the two-thirds world is not impressed by this manner of identity construction. And even, and the statistics are new, but there are very different ideas, even about gender and identification between millennials and then uh, Generation Z, Gen Z, which actually have, and again, you know, statistics are what they are, uh, but apparently Gen Z is skews more traditional when it comes to some of these things. We'll, we'll, we'll see if that holds. So things are very much still in flux as it comes to the present moment. Let's talk about present and future. So there's a lot of complexity in our world. There's a lot of complexity when it comes to gender and identification. I grant all of these things. What do we see as we go back to the scriptures? I do see here some baseline clarity. And Genesis 127 is a verse that has been talked about and written about a lot specifically in these connections. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The basic question here, as I read all of the literature, or I haven't read all of the literature, as I've read as much as I can and processed as much as I can, is Genesis 127, male and female, he created them, descriptive or prescriptive? Is it descriptive or prescriptive? If it's descriptive, that's just describing what happened to our first parents in the Garden of Eden. It could have been male and female. It could have been male and male. It could have been female and female. It could have been completely non-binary. It just happened to be this way. And if Genesis 127 and following throughout the scriptures is descriptive, that comports much more easily with contemporary views on transgender identification, etc. But if it's prescriptive, then there is a basic binarism to which we should try to lean into. And in my mind, it is the latter and not the former. Even as we compare Genesis 127 with other ancient Near Eastern accounts of the creation of human beings, there are other accounts at the time where gender is added later on. So at first, the creation of the first human beings, they, they are genderless, they are ungendered, and then at a later stage, gender is put on. So in that view, maybe gender is a little more plastic and can be changed. But as we go to the biblical account, there is no point at which the image of God is not gendered, male or female. And that carries on through Old Testament law. If you read, you know, like Exodus law, throughout the Pentateuch, the early books of the Bible, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you'll find there that Old Testament law for God's ancient people, the Israelites, is heavily gendered heavily gendered, and even to modern sensibilities, alarmingly so. There's some crazy stuff, different laws for men and women, and that's a whole different set of questions for sure, but it does seem that different laws are prescribed for men and women. And then it's been observed that going into the New Testament, Jesus seems to reaffirm this basic paradigm when, in conversation with those that are opposing him, Jesus says in Matthew 19, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Or later on in the Gospel of Matthew, the Sadducees come to Jesus and give him a puzzle about a woman whose men kept dying, and which person is the man going to be married to in the new heavens and new earth to come? So many different husbands who kept passing away. What's the marriage going to be in heaven? And Jesus says there, well, there's not going to be marriage in heaven, for in the resurrection they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, for they will be like angels in heaven. So Jesus does say 
Marriage is not going to be a thing in the new heavens and new earth, but gender does seem to persist. I also go to a place like Paul in 1 Corinthians, where the church in Corinth is in a context that's like super, super crazy in terms of gender, sexuality, partying. Like we're still catching up to what was on the ground here in Corinth. And Paul makes an argument from the body as it relates to sexual comportment like this. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So, glorify God in your body. Now, this is not asking questions here in 1 Corinthians 6 about transgender identification, but I have a hard time thinking that the Paul who wrote this way about body comportment sexually would go in a different direction. It would feel like a different direction to me if he'd say, well, gender transition, that's totally okay. As he's saying, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so it seems that the image of God is gendered. And there's nothing deeper than that gendering, the image of God. And that means, you know, we'll talk about this later, whether you fit into a neat category of gender binary or not, you're all made in the image of God. You're all deeply loved. Sometimes with churches, when they talk about the image of God in this way, that if you don't neatly fit into that gender binary, the implication, or sometimes explicitly, there's something wrong with you, and the image of God is messed up or defaced. That is not true at all. Because you are born, you are in the image of God. And even metaphorically, Go back to the Garden of Eden, and there's this beautiful picture over and over again that creation itself is a coming together, a joining of opposites. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the skies and the seas and the land. God created men and women, opposites coming together. The last Bible reference that I'll do here, Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 is talking about the relationship between husbands and wives, men and women, and he talks about this is a great mystery. This mystery is profound, the relationship between men and women, husband and wife. But then he says, but the mystery that I'm talking about here is the church, as Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride. So there's a very special and particular metaphorical weight and power to just that image. And so, if I do think that there is basic clarity when it comes to these things when we go to the scriptures, I will also allow fully that as I'm reading what I've been reading over the past few months in preparation for this ser sermon, the biblical reflection, even though I see clarity there, has not caught up to the complexity on the ground. And so I'm waiting. So with some of these other cultural issues that have been around longer, I do see more complex wrestling than I see right now from the church when it comes to gender issues, but I don't freak out about that because it's new. What do I see in the present day when I turn attention to science? And this is, again, where I'm not an expert, but I wonder if the science is as settled as it's led on when it comes to something like gender transition. Ping my radar, it was 2018 when there was a cover story in The Atlantic, and there, the cover story was written by somebody who is not a person of faith, and that person was asking the question, are we pushing our young people too soon who have gender dysphoria towards gender transition? Because the best time biologically and physically to do a gender transition is before puberty. 
prepubescence, uh, so hormone therapy and then reassignment. And there were a couple stories in the article about sometimes this doesn't go well for everybody and, and there, there, there's some regret and have, have we researched and studied enough. That's probably the most contested article that The Atlantic has published in the past 10 years. Vehemently, virulently opposed. Or earlier this year, 60 Minutes was doing an interview with a D-trans woman, a woman who became a transgender man and then transitioned back. There were calls by various advocacy groups saying, you cannot air this person's story of a D-trans experience because it would be so harmful to people in that, who have made that transition and it's just gonna you know, cause irreparable damage and we can't let that kind of sentiment get out its hate speech. And so that just raises questions with me about are things really as settled as they might seem on the surface? And I preached a few sermons ago about the whole slogan, science is real. I, I trust science, but I don't trust science funding, right? And so I, I just wonder, you know, have there been a ton of longitudinal studies of long-term long effect of gender transition? Compared to other stuff that's been studied for longer, to me the answer is no. But what if in a mainstream coastal university, hey, can we fund a study that says maybe this is not healthy for people in the long run? That study is not going to be funded by universities that are left-leaning. They will be funded by universities that are right-leaning. But how do we know and how do we trust either way? Is it really that settled? A group of pediatricians a few years ago observed that gender dysphoria, and every statistic in all of this conversation is contested, so take statistics with a grain of salt. I'm not banking on any one statistic, but this group of pediatricians observed that for adolescents that experience gender dysphoria, it resolves in 80% of adolescents by the time they exit adolescence. And so this pediatrics group was saying, are we sure we want to rush into transition when there's natural resolution for the majority of cases, which doesn't solve the question of what we do or not to treat people in the 20% as, as this you know, statistic or problem, but you know, what do we do there? That's a valid question. But do we want to rush in that direction for the 80%? Are things as settled as we think? Or from the theological perspective a few years ago, N.T. Wright made some waves a few years ago when he came out and said, I'm not fully on board with where things are going in terms of transgender identification. He's a little bit of a public intellectual. I quote him a good bit here. So he's a scholar and a priest in the Church of England. And before this point, he spoke progressive, seemingly to the secular audience in England. So he wrote against exploitation of the environment, very much pro-Christians and everybody need to care for the environment. In the financial meltdown of 2008-2009, and he write, wrote in secular magazines and periodicals, went on talk shows, saying corporate greed is out of control and why are we bailing out the richest of the rich when the poorest of the poor are being hit the hardest right now. But then he wrote in and said this about these sorts of things. The confusion about gender identity is a modern and now internet-fueled form of the ancient philosophy of Gnosticism. I won't go into that, but i just leave it there for you. The ancient Gnostic, the one who knows, has discovered the secret of who I really am behind the deceptive outward appearance. This involves denying the goodness or even the ultimate reality of the natural world. Nature, however, tends to strike back, with the likely victims in this case being vulnerable and impressionable youngsters 
who as confused adults will pay the price for their elders' fashionable fantasies. I think of my friend that I talked to you at the beginning of the sermon. And also in terms of progressive identity construction, I don't see consistency always, which makes me wonder, is this really on the right track? So if you'll permit me a flippant example, a reductio ad absurdum, as they say. There's a group of black feminists meeting. And I show up at the meeting. And it's primarily, predominantly a room of black women. And they'll say, hey, so nice to have you here, Jim. It's, it, it's great to have a white male in the room who's with us in this cause. But if I come back and say, well, I'm actually not a white male. I'm choosing to identify as a black woman. And you need to understand my reality. Now, I'd never do that in real life. That, that would be hurtful. That would be, yeah, lots of reasons. Like, don't actually ever do that. And the women in that room would say, get the blank out of here. As they should. And I would deserve it. But all I'm observing at this point is that for different subsets, what's anathema for identity construction in one room is essential for identity construction in another room. In the first room, hey, I'm choosing to identify as a black woman. No, you're not. That's not how you're born. That's not who you are. But then in another room, in terms of identifications, that's exactly how gender is constructed. And it's been observed also, LGBTQ, that historically in the 20th century, the arguments for the L and the G are not only different from the B and the T and the Q, but opposite. And so with the L and the G, I was born this way. I have no choice. But then for the B and the T and the Q, don't tell me I was born this way and that I have no choice. So I suspect that there's more to come, and the dust hasn't settled yet. But that cuts in both directions. So as we think about the present day here, this is only one man's opinion. But I would encourage you, no matter what you think personally about transgender identification, use people's pronouns that they want you to use for them, right? It's just basic human decency in my part. If, if somebody wants to be, you know, it's not obvious to your eyeballs, but like, no, I prefer feminine pronouns, I prefer masculine pronouns, I prefer gender-neutral pronouns. Use, use them. That communicates, hey, I'm a human being, you're a human being. I actually see that as, a, as an application of Jesus' golden rule. Don't be that person who, when you're shopping at the Gap at Christmas, and the sales clerk says, happy holidays, and then you say back, Merry Christmas, and then walk away going like this. Not choosing to use other people's preferred pronouns is like that, only much more harmful and traumatizing. And are we about loving people or just scoring points with some imaginary jury somewhere? As it also relates to bathrooms. Exit the bathroom wars. If, if those are battles that you're fighting and saying, no, we've got to keep bathrooms completely binary. Here's my two cents about this. As long as in public bathrooms, I can do number one and an occasional emergency number two, I don't care about the symbol on the door. Just get over it. And if that makes other people feel more comfortable in bathrooms, we can handle it. And then also present day, even if you're not sure about transgender identification and where things are going, I, we, whoever you are, need to be absolutely single-voiced and minded that we're against violence and assault against transgender people. 
That should be a no-brainer. So how do we go there? We're looking into the future. Every week here at Liberty Collingswood, in the words of the Apostles' Creed, we say, we believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. That means when it comes to these issues, we have hope and we have time. And for me, part of my goal to be a church that tries to practice a third-way walk and worldview is that we can actually have conversations about these things. We can listen without feeling like we're playing operation. Okay, I'll sit here, I'll sit here just as long as I'm 100% comfortable, but then I'm a little uncomfortable, hit the side, and I'm out. And my dream for Liberty Collingswood is that this would be a safe space where people in our midst and coming into our midst would feel comfortable saying like, hey, this is, this is me. I'm experiencing these things. Can we have a conversation? Can we be a community of help, of both truth and of grace? I'll say this too, moving into the future. If you're somebody here who's a follower of Jesus, that's like, this is like really hard for me to get behind. Or if you're somebody who's not a follower of Jesus, where it's like, this is why I'm not a follower of Jesus, because these are 100% defeater beliefs. And you might think, okay, all those old dead white guys that you mentioned, Jim, they're, they're great on pizza, but it's not actually like changing my opinion about anything right now. I'm not here to change your opinion here this morning anyway. But you might say, like, it's just really ugly, dour, and bad. Is there any beauty in this view at all? And here's what I would say. Spinning out of the Christian story for us, we receive from a crucified and resurrected Jesus a gracious opportunity to find Sabbath in our bodies. Sabbath is one of the practices of presence that we're going to talk about in our home meetings this year. Find Sabbath to rest in your body today. Try to seek the Holy Spirit to say, let me see if I can be here. Von Roberts, one more time. Humanity is the work of an artist, a divine artist. Humankind is God's masterpiece, the pinnacle of his work of creation. Genesis tells us, when he looked at the people he had made, he declared them very good. So identity is not for us to create. It sounds very freeing, on the other hand, to say, you become who you want to be, but our actual identity and that way of thinking is completely invented and therefore fluid and therefore profoundly unstable. Find Sabbath in how God has created you and find a deeper, more stable identity than any of us, whether we fall along the lines of neat binaries or not. There's a deeper identity that Jesus has for us. And treat your body, even gender, as both the gift and the calling to grow into. We don't have to freak out when it's not comfortable. And what if church could be a space where we redeem body image, where it's a place where all of those stereotypes out there stay out there? And if you're somebody where, when you look in the mirror, various parts of your body are either hopelessly too big or hopelessly too small, it's a good body. God made it. Or when your body doesn't look like a typical masculine body or a typical feminine body, it's a good body. God made it. And yes, the Bible says that there are differences between men and women, but the, there are also differences, and the Bible allows this as well, between men and, men and men and between women and women. And we can appreciate those things. And don't forget that Jesus is crucified and resurrected, where he paid the penalty for our sin on the cross, where he died and rose again in conquering sin and death and the devil for forgiveness and freedom 
which among other things means that we can be freed from thinking that we have to get our bodies right today. We can find some Sabbath and know deeper forgiveness and deeper rest. And so as I look at the church here in the West, I have reservations both about the churches when it comes to transgender identification and just moving full speed in that direction. I have reservations both with the churches that do the yes and the churches that do the yuck. Churches that do the yes, probably doing a really good job of listening to people, but I say go back to the scriptures. I just don't see how that fully comports. But then the churches that are just going yuck, like you're the ones that are causing trauma. And you're creating brittle people, including brittle followers of Jesus. But if Jesus is truly Lord, we don't have to panic and we can be peaceful. And here's what I fear for the future when I think about us culturally, so present coming into the future. And this is, Dune came out this weekend. I haven't read the book, but I'm I'm interested in the movie. This is about as science fiction-y and as tinfoil conspiracy theory hat as I get. But here goes. Thanks for listening. I think something larger is going on here where my fear of the future for our culture and our society, it's not about gender and identification. It's about to technologize itself. Where as we become increasingly psychologically fragile and technologically able, I worry that over a period of time, basic lines between man and machine human beings and animals will become blurred. From designer babies to extension of consciousness to this upgrade to this chip to this enhancement to this cosmetic fun thing. And I foresee perhaps as a calling of the church to be a place of gracious opt-out and say, hey, God's made us okay. We don't have to endlessly technologize and tinker with ourselves to get something better. We can rest actually in who we are. And here is an alternative vision of what human flourishing and beauty can actually look like. Because it's not only that we seek to find Sabbath now, but there's a Sabbath ahead. Here's the question behind the question for me. Do I actually believe the Apostles' Creed when it says, I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting? You see, for me, if there's somebody at Liberty Collingswood, whether it's our youth group or otherwise, I would say, hey, I I feel misaligned gender-wise, and I'm thinking about, you know, maybe I should transition, and I would say, hey, maybe... Can, can we hold off and have some more conversations? Could, it, could I interest you? Could, might we do that and not rush in? In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, that's a really big ask for me to make of somebody, right? And in the back of my mind, I worry, am I just causing more hardship and more problems and taking away days from when there can be a gender transition and this person can be happier and, and more comfortable? But if I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, I'm not wasting days for that person in just the same way. Because we have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. We don't have to perfect today. And we can be patient as we wait for tomorrow. And this is where I'll wrap up. Maybe the question's been in your mind, and the question's been in my mind as I was constructing the sermon this week. Jim, what right do you have? as a straight white guy 
to presume upon all these other people's stories and all of these people's things. Like, easy for you to say. And I take it in two directions. One, as a minister of word and sacrament, I interpret my calling as more broad than only preaching to and speaking about preppy, pasty, paunchy dudes like myself. And I feel like I would incur guilt before God if I would only speak to those issues in those categories. But then on the flip side, I get it. And Jim, it's easier for you to say, you know what, it is. It just is. And I don't know completely what to do about that. But I would direct you to Jesus of Nazareth, who was a man, but a man within an ethnic minority. A man, as we see the scriptures, lived celibately, did not express sexually, but was yet a complete human being, the complete human being, not just any imago dei, not just any image of God, but the image of God and the exact representation of his being for any that come to this Jesus in faith. This is the Jesus that is with you. This is the Jesus that sustains you. This is the Jesus that will redeem you. And if by faith, we come to this Jesus now, we're able to say with Paul, we are citizens of heaven. And we await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Yeah. The odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.